Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we're speaking with Gary Shulman. Gary was the Program Director of Social Services, Training Coordinator, and Special Camp Fair Coordinator for Resources for Children with Special Needs, Inc. for over 25 years. He transitioned from that position to the role of Consultant Trainer on a private basis. Prior to RCSN, Gary was the special needs coordinator for the Brooklyn Children's Museum for 10 years, a multi-sensory interactive learning environment. He began his career working with children with and without disabilities as a Head Start teacher for five years. Gary's passion is bringing relief to families of children with disabilities as well as to the professionals who support them. His workshops are informational and inspirational. Through an interactive format, participants are taken on a journey of discovery. They will learn about all the various programs and services that make life easier when caring for children with a disability and be motivated to think about their needs, wants, wishes, and dreams and how to move towards that realization. Welcome, Gary Shulman. How are you? Uh, I'm fantastic. Very excited to be sharing some of my life's journey with you. We are so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Let's dive right in. Okay. So Gary, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? My path is a very long journey. I think I started probably about 45 years ago as a Head Start teacher, which kind of got me interested in the whole concept of inclusion and the value of diversity. Mm -hmm. So I did that for about five years, and after that I was the special needs coordinator for the Brooklyn Children's Museum, which was a fully inclusionary environment working with children with and without disabilities, and my task was to really make it more open to all types of children, especially children with disabilities, and and I got great pleasure out of doing that. And I discovered that my real passion was working with the parents and making life a little less stressful for the parents because I got to know more and more parents of children and teens and adults with disabilities. So I was offered a position at a place which was then called Resources for Children with Special Needs, and they actually... Uh, found me at the Brooklyn Children's Museum, and we conducted a summer resource fair together at the museum. They liked who I was, they liked my philosophy, and they asked me if I wanted to come on board, which I did, and I stayed there for over 24 years, working with parents as an advocate in charge of all the social service issues, crisis issues. I was the training director. And then when I hit 62, I thought, maybe I should slow down a little bit. <laughs> not, not possible, not possible, but I did leave there, and I became a private consultant and trainer, and as a result, have been working more and more and becoming more and more passionate. And I think that 
leadership for me is something that has nothing to do with titles. It has to do with how I model my behavior. And I've always believed that if you're passionate about what you do, it's going to rub off on other people. And that's really how I began my journey of leadership in just being the best person I could be, doing what I could do the best way possible, getting down in the trenches, helping as many people as possible with integrity, never stopping trying to do that to the best of my ability. And I think that's the road of leadership that I took, always being down in the trenches and helping the families and hoping that other people noticed what I was doing and how I did it. And I think that that has really rubbed off on many, many, many other young people coming up in the profession. I love to hear that because to me, it's someone who walks the talk. I love that you mentioned that it's not about position, but about your way of being. Right. Uh, I've never had a desire to be a leader, but I've discovered people have said to me over the years, you know, Gary, there was one incident where after conducting a training, a social worker came over to me and said, you know what, Gary, this was the week that I decided I was going to retire. And after hearing your passion and what you do, it reminded me why I got into this profession and I've decided not to retire. Now, this is not somebody who works for me. I'm not their executive director. I'm not their supervisor. But I think that's leadership in a more profound way. In if you follow your passion and you do it honestly and others pick up on that who are perhaps in the same field, if you can motivate them to be the best person they can be, maybe that's the best way of being a leader, at least the way I view leadership. I absolutely agree. Now, you mentioned that your passion was working with parents. How did you discover that? You know, there's something that happens in your brain cells and in your gut. When you're doing something and you walk away with tremendous joy and satisfaction, I love working with children. I've done that many, many years. When I started actually working with parents and other adults in the field and seeing concrete results, lessening their stresses, giving them strategies, it just, you know, Maslow spoke many years ago about self-actualizing experiences where you're really feeling alive. And I just found that experience of seeing the change in a face of a parent from going from profound depression to seeing some hope. It gave me hope. It told me that at the end of the day, I could still look in a mirror and smile and say, Shulman, you left the world a better place. And I don't think there's anything more important. I, I, always, say, I always tell professionals who are going into this field, I say, if you're in this because you think you're going to get monetarily rich, truly you're in the wrong profession. But if you stick with this, you're going to be the richest people on earth because the satisfaction of making life better in some way for another human being, there's nothing more satisfying. So I have to say it's very selfish in a way because it just makes me feel so good. Now, that could be a very selfish reason for doing this, but what makes me feel good is making other people feel more hopeful about their future. And parents of children with disabilities are so often told things that make them feel the opposite way. And so often conversations concentrate on the disabilities of their children. I try to have the families think more about the possibilities, the abilities, and what the future can bring and how we can look at all those various options to bring some hope. And I can't think of anything better that I would want to do. I can't 
possibly even conceive of retiring because it brings me too much joy to do this. I'm an educator, I'm an ed leader, and as a parent of a child with special needs, you certainly are speaking to my heart and I appreciate all that you do. It's clear that you are in your element and that's where passion resides. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Now, Gary, how would you describe your leadership style? I'm a bulldog, but a very nice bulldog, the kind of bulldog that you'd want to pet and scratch behind the ear. I believe in making many, many friends, allies. If you do what you do with passion and integrity, you're going to make a few enemies along the trail. Mm -hmm. But I'm relentless, relentless in the way that I do what I do. And Mm -hmm. I think that other people pick up on that and they see that when you're in this field of social services, of the helping profession, you have to continually educate yourself. You have to be relentless as far as your research. I get calls often from young people right out of college, Gary, I would also like to be a consultant. You know, I want to do what I'm doing. I got all A's. And I go, oh, that's wonderful. I say, who knows you and what have you done? Mm-hmm. And they kind of are taken aback. Sometimes they're insulted. I say, no, truly, who knows you? What have you done? How have you proven yourself? Are you researching now what is changing, what's up to date, what you need to know right now? Because what you learned in college has probably changed already. The systems are changing. Prove yourself. Work with families. Link with a quality organization for the next several years. And then maybe think about why somebody should pay you as a private consultant, but prove yourself first. And that to me, that has to do with leadership style. It means constantly improving what you know, how you present the information to parents and professionals. Do it relentlessly. Families know that they have to physically tell me to stop helping them. Because that's part of my OCD as well. And maybe part of my leadership style is using my own special needs, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think in this profession, it really helps. Um, It doesn't stand in the way at all. But I know families have to certainly tell me, Gary, it's okay. You don't have to give me any more information. (laughs) I have what I need. So I guess my style is being that kind of a bulldog, being relentless in pursuing ways of helping families, doing it with quality providing information in a very organized way because parents are so overwhelmed that they don't need more chaos in their life. They need a little organization, calming down. So I guess that's my style. My style is to never give up, to constantly research what's new, to go beyond the boundaries. Some families only deal with the systems that they've been told about, I'm very creative and say, okay, that's fine. Yes, that's the established way of dealing with this, but let's be more creative. Let's go beyond that. Let's not just look at special needs programs and services. Your children have a right to be included in this world. Let's look at what's right in your neighborhood. And through my trainings, and I do over 100 workshops a year, I think that my leadership style is to really impart the knowledge to young folks coming up in this profession is, You have to think creatively and you have to think out of the box and you cannot just deal with what you've been told you should be sharing with the families. You've got to research what else might be out there to help them with their issues, with their problems, with their concerns, and be as creative 
as possible so that they know all the various options and then they can make decisions as to what matches their family's needs. One of the things that really speaks to my heart, and this is something that I've always thought, is that special needs can be special gifts. And here is a perfect example of how you're using OCD to serve other people. Absolutely. You know, part of my OCD has to do with things being in order, things being organized just a certain way. Just to give an example, because I think this is a way that families can start thinking about as you say, the gifts that their children's disabilities might also bring to them. A mm-hmm. child who has an autism spectrum disorder who also needs things, let's say very organized things in a row. When I got my job at the Brooklyn Children's Museum, every morning I would get there at least an hour early so that I could walk around the collections room because the collections were all organized very neatly and to me, It was heaven. I found nirvana. I would just stroll up and down the aisles looking at all these things organized. And I'm thinking, now, what a perfect kind of a job for somebody who either has OCD, who has an autism spectrum disorder, who has an obsessive compulsive disorder where organization brings them relief, brings them satisfaction, is a passion. And I think that's the trick, is looking at... The abilities, looking at the passions, looking at all aspects of your child's disability and to see where those passions and those characteristics can then perhaps be used in a job. I was on the train a few years Mm -hmm. ago and a young man came on and I said, this is one of my kids because he's rocking back and forth and everybody's moving away. And as the train is pulling into each station, he's announcing all the different trains that you can transfer to. Now he's doing this. He doesn't work for the MTA. He's in his early 20s. And I'm thinking, gee, is this what he's doing on a daily basis? Does his family know that he could possibly get a job with the Transit Authority, that there's a program called the 55A program where they can waive the test to give somebody with a disability a civil service job, like working for the MTA? Is he linked with Access VR so somebody's helping him with his vocational future? Does anybody know this is his passion? And is anybody using that to help him with his future decisions about a career? While everybody else is moving away, I'm sitting there doing like a vocational assessment. (laughs) But that's because I'm seeing that this is a skill, this is a talent, and everybody else is saying, you know, this is somebody who I don't want to associate with. Wow, Gary, so you're seeing things that people typically don't see. I love how you express that your style is a bulldog style, relentless and creative. And that's something that we can certainly look to imitate because it certainly serves many people. Like I think about that young man on the train. I love that you said that he's one of your kids because it shows how connected you are to people around you, and what a serving heart and a creative mind. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, look, we're living in a world now where people look at each other with anger. Right. I sit, I sit on a train with a smile on my face. Now, in New York City, that can bring problems sometimes. <laughs> yes. It often gets me a seat. But, you know, I believe it's about making connections, and that carries through over, again, in my leadership style. It's all about... Kindness, one of the workshops that I do is called Communicating with Kindness. Mm -hmm. And I always try to let families know and I always try to let 
professionals know that that has to be the basis of everything that you do, because this is what a human being is supposed to be doing. And even if a family is yelling at you, is screaming at you, is cursing you, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the baggage that they're carrying around with them. It's their life experiences. It's our jobs to try to bring some relief and to just take a deep breath and continue to model that kindness. And maybe that is part of leadership as well, is modeling kindness. You can't tell people to be kind. You have to do that, and hopefully that that will rub off on them. Now, Gary, you mentioned that you were a consultant. What other services do you provide? Because I am passionate about information, but there are a lot of people who are passionate about information, and then they just collect information and they don't do anything with it. That, to me, Mm -hmm. is useless. That's not going to help anybody. So what I do is, and it's all part of my OCD, I collect information, but then I use that information to help other people. So in that regard, I have really gotten a reputation here in the city of being somebody that you can call upon to put together valuable information in an organized way to help folks. So to give an example, places like the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene called upon me to create the online resource guide for New York City Early Intervention. Service coordinators and the families that they are serving, all the basics about what they need to know to get some relief in New York City. Right Mm -hmm. now online, one can go to the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene's website and access the resource guide that I wrote. I did a similar thing for the Administration for Children's Services for foster families caring for children with disabilities. So I think a lot of the professionals who perhaps are listening, one of the things that I offer is if there's a need for information that can bring relief to some of the families that you're working with, I'm somebody who can absolutely be called upon as a consultant to help you formulate that kind of a resource guide or resource listing for the particular families that you're working with or to conduct training sessions so that your staff can be the best staff possible to help those families. And I do this all the time. I conduct over 100 workshops a year. I'm a Department of Education vendor, do a lot of work with the social workers, parent coordinators, school staff, as well as working with families themselves in various public and private schools, social service agencies. One of my greatest, greatest passions is working with foster parents who have chosen to take into their lives children Mm. with disabilities. They are very often misrepresented as individuals who are doing this for the quote-unquote money. And there isn't enough money in the world, as you know, being a parent of a child with a disability, to compensate for, and I've seen the love in their hearts, and I can't even imagine Mm -hmm. when it comes to ripping those children out of their homes after they've fallen in love with those children and given them their lives. So I love working with foster parents, supporting them, helping them tap into all the rich resources we have in the city to make life easier for the kids they're caring for. So I'm always available for that kind of consultation. I love doing that. I love doing training. I love putting together resource materials. And that's the way that I think other leaders in the field of social services can utilize my talents and skills. And if they wanted to reach you, what's the best way to do that? If you go online and just put in Gary Shulman, it generally takes you right to my website and it describes the array of services that I have to offer. They can also email me at Gary 
Shulman at nyc.rr.com. Emailing is always best, I feel, because then it helps me organize my thoughts, and especially if somebody is asking for any kind of resources, it's easy for me to attach things, it's easy for me to go into detail. If they prefer the old-fashioned method of phone calling, I'm at 646-596-5642. That's my business cell. I do tell people I'm a dinosaur, and the one thing I prefer them not to do is to text me. I have an old flip phone. I have no idea what to do if somebody texts me, and I tell families (laughs) also, you know, the best way that I can help you is by giving you resource information and names and phone numbers and websites that are going to help you, and I just can't do that through a text. I want to Mm -hmm. be able to help you the best way possible. I appreciate that because you and I had an exchange as well. I typically do this via Skype. And you were real clear, this isn't the best way for me. And so we were able to kind of shift, but still get this done. And this is very important work that we're doing together. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you bringing up that conversation because this is something that leaders need to hear. There's certain assumptions we make about the folks that we are supporting and helping. This is a world of high technology. We make certain assumptions Those assumptions can lead to embarrassment for some families. I always Mm -hmm. ask, what's the best way for me to communicate with you? And I teach this to social service professionals. I say, don't assume that a parent is comfortable texting. You may be saying to a family, okay, you know, I will uh, email you, Mrs. Johnson, you know, so we can uh, follow up with our conversation. That's a parent who might have to go to the library in order to email you. And they're embarrassed to say, no, I don't have the capacity from my house to email you or to do this. Or they're embarrassed to say to you, oh, no, no, I prefer phone calls because that's the old-fashioned way. Ask. Put them at ease. I will always ask you, how do you prefer me to communicate with you? So asking those questions That's part of leadership as well, Mm -hmm. assessing from the people that you're supposed to be helping what makes them as comfortable as possible so that you can be sharing information in a way that makes sense for both of you. And I appreciate that, Gary, because I certainly learned to do that with you. I assumed, and so to have this alternative is really freeing for my guests. I learned something, so thank you so much for that. You're welcome, and thank you for being so accommodating. I said, I'm not going to let this one slip. I mean, look, there are other people who would react, what? You don't Skype? You know, what rock have you been living under? And everybody has a different journey in life, you know? I'm an old old man. There are old people who who feel comfortable doing things the old way, you know, and I'm always willing to learn. But I think because of my OCD, that's a journey in and of itself, learning a new way of doing things. And it's kind of a process for me. Great. Now, can you tell us which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? There are a few. And there's a Canadian writer, her name is Robin Sharma, and she wrote, leadership is not about your title, it's about your behavior. And I've never been about supervising people. I've Mm -hmm. always been about getting down and dirty in the trenches and doing it the best way I know how with passion. And I think people pick up on that. For me, the kind of work that I do is never a Monday to Friday, nine to five endeavor. Crises happen at 10 o'clock in the evening on Sunday. 
You don't have to do this, but I tell the families that I work with, if you need to contact me on a weekend, you do that. If you need to contact me early in the morning, I'm up at 6 o'clock. You are too because you have children. You're probably up even earlier. It's fine. If there's a crisis at 11 o'clock, chances are right before I go to bed, I'm going to be checking my computer. So that whole concept of the way that you behave toward the folks that you're supporting and serving that to me is more profound leadership than the title. The other one is if you want to lift yourself up, lift up somebody else by Booker T. Washington. Mm. And it's again, live your life in such a way that you're always reaching out. At a certain point, you're going to need to reach out to someone else. And if you've done that, they're going to be very willing to reach out to you and help you. So it's a matter of really elevating yourself as a human being by continually helping others. Don't ask necessarily to be recognized for it. You know, that's not why we do it for the recognition. You do it because it's the right thing to do. It'll come back to you if you keep giving as much of yourself as possible. So if you want to lift yourself up, lift up somebody else. And the other one that I use a lot when I'm doing training is be kinder than necessary because everybody that you meet is fighting some kind of a battle. And often... It's a very frustrating field, social services. You hear a lot of people complaining. You hear a lot of misery going on. We see a lot of professionals burning out. But I always bring them back to the fact that we're all in this together. We all have our own battles. Think about your own battle when somebody is yelling at you because you're not doing your job the way they think that you should be doing it, and you're not getting me this, and you're not getting me that, and how come I don't have 10 hours of respite a week? Take a deep breath and just remember your own battles that you're fighting and then respond with kindness. And the last one that I really love is they tried to bury me but didn't realize I was a seed. And that's an old Mexican proverb. And I just love that because we're always going to be confronted by people who are negative and they're going to try and bury us for who we are for our opinions, but to me that says we are resilient and we must remain resilient under all odds, even when people are attacking diversity, when people are trying to take away rights, we have to remember, well, you know what, we're a seed, and as Mm -hmm. much as they try to do that, we're just going to break through the ground and grow higher and grow stronger. Gary, I love all these quotes, and especially the last one. And you spoke about kindness, you know, in this climate that we live in. That's so needed, now more than ever, right? There's so much bullying Mm -hmm. and hatred being modeled by people in positions of power, and that trickles down to bullying in school, to an acceptance of hatred that should never be accepted. That should never be the norm. So at least each of us must model kindness. And I think hopefully that will trickle down. Many years ago, when I was young and had a full head of hair, and I got <laughs> and, it was, and it was the only lottery that I've ever won, it was the lottery to be drafted because I mm-hmm. was a young man during the era of Vietnam and I was drafted into the army. And I truly believe that through modeling kindness, we can dispel concepts of bigotry, stereotyping. There was a gentleman in my platoon who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and he heard my name was Shulman, 
and to him, you know, that's a Jewish name, and he decided he was going to come over and do what he could do to let me know what he'd been taught about folks whose names were Shulman. I very quickly made him my best friend. And through sharing what we had in common, all of his stereotypical concepts were rattled in his brain to the point where I was even invited to a Ku Klux Klansman's wedding in Arkansas after I left basic training, which I did not go to, was not willing to then sensitize his whole family. But it just shows you that if you stand strong and you model kindness and you're willing to confront bigotry, not with hatred, not with anger, but with education and with sensitivity, you really can make miraculous changes in people. If I could become friends with a Ku Klux Klansman who had to really rethink what he had been taught about Jewish people, we all have the power just through being who we are to change this world. That's powerful. And Gary, kindness and love and empathy, all those things that you practice, how do you keep from burning out? Because you're constantly giving. I think you just answered your own question. By constantly giving, there's tremendous reward given back to you tenfold. I always learn from parents. When I get a thank you, and again, it's not the reason we do it, But when one parent of a child with a disability physically takes the time to send me a thank you to let me know how much it's meant to them that I took the time to help them, and I know how overwhelmed they are, and I know how cramped their schedule is, there is such a reward in getting that kind of feedback from parents that it just absolutely keeps me going. It feeds my soul. It feeds my spirit. It feeds my brain cells. And I don't know what the concept of retiring is. You retire to something that would bring you perhaps more joy. And at this point in my life, there's nothing that brings me more joy than continually helping the families. It's what we're supposed to be doing. At least that's that's my feeling. Yes. Thank you so much for that. I'm Mia Hanscom, founder and CEO of Apropo Software, and I've just launched an app for early language learners and kids like mine with autism and speech delays. Sanit Sam is a game app that uses speech recognition to activate whimsical animations and sound effects that children love. Say a color and see what happens. Sanit Sam is available on the App Store for the iPad and iPhone. Try it. It's fun and free. Go to www.sanitsam.com. That's S-A-Y-I-N-I-T-S-A-M. Say it. Play it. Gary, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? When I was in a position where I had leaders, I had supervisors that I needed to answer to. What works for me and what inspires me the most are leaders that have confidence in their abilities to hire the best possible people and then let them do what they need to do. So I'm not someone who is particularly inspired by micromanaging individuals. I'm I'm more inspired by a leader who knows what is needed in that organization, hires the best possible person, and then gives them free reign to do what they need to do in the way they need to do it. The executive director who hired me many, many, many years ago at Resources for Children with Special Needs in the beginning, I think, tried to micromanage me and asked me to be on several coalitions and networks and then saw that what I needed to do is to be there 
in the office, constantly working with the families, not being outside the office because that took me away from what I felt was the most important thing, was hands-on, helping the parents all the time and helping the professionals who were calling us. And then really after a few weeks realized that was my greatest value and she completely left me alone, let me do what I needed to do exactly the way I needed to do it. So that's what inspires me is people who have the realization that they have the ability to hire high quality individuals. And once you do that, you don't need to then lead them or manage them any longer if you've hired the right person. So someone who trusts in your abilities. That's right. And mm-hmm. also those leaders who get down into the trenches and when things get overwhelming in an organization, they dive right in and not just necessarily tell other people to do this, to do that. But if I can see a leader, a supervisor, picking up the swag, making the phone calls, using the skills that they learned many, many years ago before they became the supervisor, the director, going back to doing the hands-on helping, that inspires me. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Now, Gary, what's the best advice you've ever received? Don't be so concerned about what others are thinking. If you have confidence in what you're doing and how you're doing it, there will be always people who will complain about what you're doing if it's not exactly the way they do it. But if in your heart of hearts, you know that for you and for your style, your skills, your talent, your passions, you're doing it the way you need to be doing it, don't be concerned about what others are thinking. It's going to work out for you. They cannot be who you are. They have their own skills. They have their own abilities. And they are comporting themselves the way they need to based upon who they are. And very often when you come across people who feel that you should be the way they are because that's the best way to do it, that's Mm -hmm. never going to work. I think Mm -hmm. what's always going to work is you feeling comfortable about doing what you do the way you do it. So I guess, again, don't be so concerned about what others are thinking. It doesn't matter as long as you know that you're following your passion in the way you need to do it so you can get the best results possible. Great advice. Thank you so much for that. Now, Gary, you're extremely self-aware. And I know that some of that comes with experience, some of that comes with research, some of that comes with age and gray hair. Or no hair. (laughs) But there's a time when a person decides that they really need to get certain things. What is some advice that you can give our listeners about becoming more self-aware? Well, I think that there's an exercise that you can do and maybe at the end of the day look in the mirror and just ask yourself if you're leading a genuine life. And I think that means are you happy with what you're doing, the choices that you've made? It's all about choices. Another thing I always say to professionals and they kind of look at me startled, I say, I will help you to the best of my ability to do what you're doing to support your families. But if there's anybody sitting in this room who's going home every day with a migraine, going home with tremendous stress, you're developing an ulcer, I would love you to also contact me as soon as possible. I will help you think about other possible careers. And I can't tell you how many people have followed up with that. So what I would say to young people is, if you're discovering that you're not in the place you want to be in, I'm very good at helping people think about their strengths, their skills, their talents, 
and what else can you be doing so that you're feeling more fulfilled if you're not passionate about your position what you're doing right now if you've discovered after the fact you're in the wrong career it's never too late as long as you're breathing and you all have a right to be happy because if what you're doing makes you happy you're going to make the other people around you happy you're going to be able to do your job in a high quality manner but if you're miserable even if you pretend with a smile on your face Families are going to pick up on that. Your coworkers are going to pick up on that. So at the end of the day, the little experiences, look in the mirror and ask yourself, are you living a genuine, honest life doing what you're doing in all aspects of what you're doing? And if the answer is not, yes, I am, that's okay. You're not a failure. Mm-hmm. You thought this was going to be what would satisfy you. If it isn't, look at something else and there are people like me who could help you look at other skills and talents that you have and redirect that into a different career into a different profession because we live on this earth for a very few years the human life expectancy is really a very short time do what you love to do in the best way possible and if you have gotten into a situation where that's not the case it's not too late people change their careers all the time if it means making less money, trust me, you'll be making your life longer, you'll be happier in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, and you'll still be richer in your heart, possibly, than you'll be in your pocketbook, and that's more important. Gary, I love how you value people. It's so apparent. We're on the first five questions, and I'm so full. My heart is full because of all the advice that you're giving and your way of being. But this advice is powerful because it talks about discovery and how important it is for us to discover who we are and what our purpose is. So thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. Now, Gary, what does it mean to have a good team and how do you build or sustain one? As somebody who very often is a one-person show, that's my style. I would rather be locked in a room helping families by myself than necessarily being part of a network. But there have been times in my life where I needed to be part of a network. And I think what I believe in doing is surrounding myself with high-quality people who are also passionate about what they do. And I have developed contacts in all areas of what I do that I know I can count on. These are people who I've observed. I see how they help families, how they help other professionals, and I observe the quality of what they do. And I have made it my business to help them when they needed help. As a result, now they are part of my network. And when I'm in a real crisis with a particular family, if I think there's somebody else who could do something better than I can, I have a team of people who, when I say a team, they're in all different areas of expertise. It might be a neuropsychologist that I have found. It might be a social worker I've found. It could be a case manager I've found. It could be a dentist I've found. And I hold on to these quality people. I do as many favors for them as I possibly can. I don't call in favors very often, but when I do, very rarely do I get a negative response So I think it's a matter of surrounding yourself with high-quality people. That becomes your team. They don't have to be at the same place where you work. They don't have to be your coworkers. 
I'm talking about a team of people in all areas of domains, in all aspects of what you do to help families and help them whenever possible, as often as possible, and they will stay in your life. I have people that I know now for 30 years. It's the same thing as when you make a good friend. You don't need a lot of good friends. You need a few good friends who are your honest, genuine good friends, and they stay with you forever and ever. I've developed that kind of a network in my profession, in my field of helping families of children, teens, and adults with disabilities. And we help each other, and we're there for each other, and we're there for the families that we're working with, and we help each other in that regard as well. One of the things that I say to families that very often at a certain point in our lives, we have to make our own families, and that isn't necessarily the people that we are related to by blood. It's the people who accept us for just who we are, who love the children that we have in our lives that we've given birth to or that we've taken into our families. And if there are people who can't accept that, they could be your blood relatives. But if they're not adding to the value of your life, sometimes we have to say goodbye to them. And then we have to bring other people into our lives who become our families. I think it's the same thing with a network of professionals. I've learned who not to necessarily keep in my life, and I've learned who to bring into my life, and I consider them my extended family. And this is my team. It's my extended family of professionals who think the way I do, who are as passionate as I am, who I can call upon, and they know they can call upon me when they need help. I've written some things down based on what you said. So you're very intentional about the people that you have on your team. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you select people with a similar purpose, a similar goal, and you value them, and you look to serve them. But I want to make it very clear. I'm not looking for clones of Gary Shulman because I know that I can be overwhelming for certain families, and there are people in my network of professionals that I have teamed up with who I know are the opposite as far as personality. And for a particular parent, I might discover that I could be overwhelming for that particular parent. Gee, let me link them with so-and-so who happens to be someone very calming, somebody very mm -hmm, soothing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who has the kind of personality that I think this particular parent needs to deal with right now. Whereas somebody else might say, you know what, Gary, this is somebody I need to link with you because I think she's a go-getter. She wants to do it all on her own, but she just doesn't have the information. She wants as much information as possible. You're the one who's going to be able to give that to her. So I think you learn which professionals also are a good fit for particular families that you're working with. And in that way, we all help each other. You know, I'm not looking for people who are similar to me in the way they do things. I'm looking for people who are high quality and passionate about what they do, but with different personalities and they do it different ways because I might see linkages that they would be better for a particular parent, for a particular professional than I would be only because of how they do what they do. But they have to have that passion behind them and they have to have the quality and the expertise in what they do. And once I know that's who they are, then I have more people that I can link my families with so that the end result is what is needed for that particular family. Thank you so much. Now, Gary, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Oh, sure. I mean, as I said, I have OCD. 
I come from a family where I think my mother probably also had OCD, also had probably looking back, a lot of this is in retrospect, and I grew up in the 50s, and mental illness was not something spoken about, dealt with in the same way, and I saw this within my own family. I experienced that myself growing up. So I think I had my own challenges as a child, as a teenager growing up, which in some way perhaps made me more sensitive and caring for families who have similar challenges in their lives. And it kind of grounded me in a way that made me always respond with kindness because I think of my own experiences. So perhaps taking the challenges that I had as a child with obsessive compulsive disorder, with tics, with things that I saw in my mother as well and from other family members. So a lot of this, I think, was inherited. But I took that, and as an adult, perhaps that led me ultimately to being an advocate for families who are going through similar challenges. So it's using what could have been perceived as a negative, and there are some folks who perhaps would have taken that challenge, and that could have caused them to really dive into a place of depression I kind of went the other direction. I took the challenges of my youth and I said, you know what? You know how that feels. You know you've been there. You know how other families might be feeling right now. Why don't we use those past challenges to help lift themselves up from their current challenge? So I think it's my childhood and the difficulties and challenges that I've had as a child that have now created a positive way of dealing with families. You know, I could always call upon how I felt in my younger years. Well, that's powerful. You know, the same thing that we've talked about from the beginning. You look at, you know, a special need that you have and you've actually used it to help other people. And if we can focus on doing that, then we can really connect with other people and then be able to help them. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the reality is disability is a label, ability is a label. There are areas that I need help with. There are always going to be areas that I excel in. And that's the same for anybody with a label of disability. There are always going to be areas that that person needs help with. There are always going to be areas that they will excel in. And I think if we focus in on those areas that they're going to excel in, that opens up the door for fuller inclusion into this world. I did a training a couple of months back. I was working with adults, and they all had autism spectrum disorder. And one particular adult only communicated through music. And it was very interesting, as whenever he wanted to express how he was feeling, he had an iPad, and he would scroll to a certain song. And there was the song that would express his reaction to what was going on at the time. I wasn't sure he was really getting what I was saying or he was really connected to the experience, but at the end of the workshop, which was a two-hour workshop, and we were dealing with communicating with the professionals in your life and how to more effectively communicate with case managers and doctors and people you need to deal with as an adult with a disability. But he came over to me after the workshop and He told me to wait before I left, and he scrolled down to the greatest love of all. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the tears started rolling out of my eyes. He was telling me he loved what I was communicating, and it was just so Mm -hmm. profound. We look at folks with disabilities through very stereotypical eyes, you know, and that's what we've been taught. And if we could look a little deeper, it's amazing what we can discover, what is really going on in there, and then see those talents and skills 
And the next step is to use those to help them be as independent as possible. I found that to be a real difficulty with some of the parents that I've worked with. There's such a fear that they try to hold on to their children as tightly as possible rather than mm-hmm. helping them be as independent as possible. And I know that could be very scary, but probably that's the best thing you can do for your child is to help give them the skills to be as independent as possible in this crazy society of ours. So that's always a goal of mine. I know as a parent, our fear can really stifle them. So we really have to be careful about that. But thank you so much. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? Yeah, there are different ways of looking at success. Sometimes success can be apparently monumental, you know, all over the newspapers. And then, you know, just linking a family with a Saturday respite program could be saving that family's life. But one of the greatest successes that I had was, you know, early on in my career working at Resources for Children with Special Needs, I was told very specifically by the executive director what my job description was, and that was to work with New York City families of children birth to 21 with disabilities, with whatever they needed. I said, okay, fine, that's very specific. And then one of the first phone calls I got was from a gentleman with a very, very heavy Mideastern accent. And I said, oh, sir, you know, how can I help you? And where are you calling from? Because I've been told I have to only work with New York City families. And he was calling from Pakistan. And so the first thing I did was I closed my office door. (laughs) I just got this job and I didn't want to lose it. I said, well, you know, how can I help you? And it turned out that he had a niece with a very serious heart condition and she literally was going to die if we didn't get appropriate medical service. There were no doctors in Pakistan who could deal with this particular very involved heart condition on this little child. So he wanted me to get her to New York free of charge, get her the appropriate medical care, and save her life. This was his niece. And again, I've just been told by my executive director that I'm supposed to be working only with New York City families of children here and. Well, within two weeks, I was able to get her flown to New York. I got an organization called Gift of Life to do the free operation. We put her up at Ronald McDonald House. I got the Sunshine Foundation to pay for the airline tickets. And we saved this child's life, you know, within two weeks. And that's when I realized that there is the job description that you're told And then there's the job description that supersedes all other job descriptions, which is to leave this world a better place any way you can. But rather than scolding me, because then I finally decided, let me share this with the executive director. They use that as a story for fundraising. (laughs) So even though I did what I shouldn't have done, from that point on, they just kind of gave me free reign to do whatever I needed to do to go beyond New York City and whoever call needing help, even if they were calling from Pakistan, give it to Gary, let him do what he needs to do. Ultimately, it's a good thing. It will help the organization because we could always use that as a carrot to dangle in front of benefactors and foundations. But it also told me that that is what we should be doing. Any way we can be doing it is to be leaving this world a better place. It was a profound experience because, you know, I got a phone call two weeks after this initial phone call, and I thought it was the same person, but it wasn't. It was the father, and uh, it was very profound, you know. So there are ways that we literally save families' lives, but just linking them with one thing that could relieve their stress also saves lives. 
So I want leaders and future leaders to understand that what you might be perceiving to be something small, helping a parent get a child into the right school, helping them get a summer camp, getting them you know, supplemental security income, linking them with a support group, all of these little things that you might say, oh, that's not a big deal. Yeah, I had the information. I shared it with them. Well, they may not have known how to get that information, and you literally could be saving their life by just sharing valuable information to relieve some of the stress in their lives. Gary, I've written down some words that just jump out at me mm-hmm. about who you are as a leader. When I think about leadership qualities, would you mind if I share those with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so I love how passionate you are. And you said that from the very beginning, but, you know, some people say that and they don't really live that. You personify passion. The fact that you retired, so to speak, and are so continuously passionate about what you're doing, it's real clear. You're a risk taker. You value people greatly, certainly relentless, ferociously relentless, I love how curious you are about people, how curious you are about information, and because of that, you're able to serve the community in in the way that you do. I love how flexible you are and how courageous, because even when things are on the line for you, you look at the bigger picture. You're also visionary, and you're a great connector. And lastly, I wrote down wise. And to me, wisdom is very connected with humility. So I'd say humble as well. I wanted to share that with you and thank you because you stepped up into leadership and are serving humanity. You know, one thing I want to add, because I didn't mention it, what I do for parents and for individual professionals, I do not charge them a penny. I only charge when I am contracted by agencies to provide a specific product, to provide a specific training. But all of the information that I share and the advocacy that I do now as a private consultant for individual parents and individual professionals calling me to support those parents, I don't ask for money to do that. I don't believe in that. I think that adds stress to the situation. So if there are any leaders out there who need my assistance to help families they're working with, and if there are any parents, because I've found many leaders themselves can be parents of children with disabilities. Um, What I do is something that I do from my heart. It's something I need to do. It makes me feel wonderful doing it. So I would say continue to make me feel wonderful by contacting me if you need help and money will never come into play. I don't get funded to do that and I'd never ask for a a single penny to do that. So I added one more word, generous. (laughs) (laughs) So Gary, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? These are discouraging times. I think you have to be genuine. Don't compromise your passion. Don't go after funding streams that will monumentally and fundamentally change the nature of what you believe just because it's out there. Surround yourself with people who believe in your passion. Sometimes it's easier just to go after the funding sources, and that sometimes can completely change the nature of who you are, what you believe. You've got to be very honest with yourself again at the end of the day about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if you stay on that path 
and you're genuine on that path, you will have success. And success does not necessarily mean that you are, again, monetarily rich. It means that you are saving lives because you are doing what you need to be doing in the way you need to do it. That's not easy. They understand that sometimes leadership means keeping an organization alive, and that means getting the funding. But that's also a matter of choice. And when you take money from certain entities, you are responsible in some way to those entities. And they may not believe philosophically what you're doing or the way you're doing it, and they may try to influence you. Maybe that's not the place you should be seeking funding from. So I think you have to be very clear about your goals, what you want to do, how you want to do it, what you're passionate about, and whether or not that's a genuine passion. And if you can say, yes, this is genuine, this is what I need to be doing, what I should be doing, then surround yourself with people who support that. Great. Thank you so much for that. That's really important for us to reflect on because we certainly can compromise. There's a strong pull to do that. But when we don't do that and we are genuine, authentic about our passion and our purpose, then we certainly lead in a different way. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? One of my greatest thrills is to find one new piece of information. I rejoice. Being a lifelong learner means constantly researching. Even though I said I'm technologically a dinosaur, I say, thank goodness we have the Internet. Every day I am searching for new programs, new services. Every time a family brings up a new issue or a professional brings up an issue where I do not immediately have the answer, I'm on that. I am researching. I am calling. I'm confirming. I'm learning, and then, here's the important aspect of all of this, you file that information in a way that you can easily retrieve. I cannot tell you how many times <laughs> social workers have contacted me, Gary, I'm looking for a Saturday respite program for a nine-year-old child with autism living in Queens, and I will give them every one of those programs, and then the next week, Same person will call me back, oh, Gary, now I'm looking for a Saturday respite program for a six-year-old with autism. I said, well, that's the same programs. What did you do with that information? Oh, oh, I didn't realize I was going to need that information again. And kind of my jaw drops, and I say, you must create files. You must create a resource bank. If you find a neuropsychologist who speaks Urdu in Bayside, That's a treasure. You put that information (laughs) in place because you're going to need that. If you don't need it now, you're going to need it three years from now. And then you're going to say, oh, wait, didn't I find that? Oh, gee, where did I? (laughs) So it's constant research, constant. And I don't understand people who don't understand that, who get a job with an organization and they're going to be somebody's case manager. And they're given a list of resources from the organization, and that's what they use again and again and again, and they don't think that possibly they should be expanding that in some way. No matter where I've ever worked, I would get to work over an hour early, and in the morning, I would be researching what I needed to do for somebody that day so that I'm not just giving them what I know. I'm making sure they're being presented with all 
possible options. There could be one new treasure. That's the treasure that's going to save their life. That's the treasure that's going to make life less stressful. So it's constant research. And I know that a lot of folks, once they leave school, they think <laughs> they've left school. You never leave school. You just started. You just started. 99% of what you learned in college, you're never going to use. <laughs> once you get your feet into the real world, that's when the education begins. That's when the real research begins. And it never ends. And I'm excited every day to find a new piece of information that I know it's going to help somebody. And even if it's not some family I'm currently working with, that's going to be filed away in a place that I can easily retrieve it. And I'm going to be so excited to share that with a family because I know it's going to make a big impact on their life. Thank you so much for that. Gary, if there were something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? Well, I think that there needs to be more opportunities for internships, apprenticeships, especially for teens, all teens, not just teens with disabilities. Mm -hmm. I think that schools need to incorporate the real world in a way that they're not incorporating it right now. I think that there needs to be more opportunities to get middle schoolers, high schoolers out into the community through volunteering, even if it means an hour or two during the course of the day that they're supposed to be in school. You know, and I'm going to say something, people can throw rocks at me. Not everybody needs to go to college. I think we need more opportunities for if somebody is passionate about hanging wallpaper, whatever they need to be an apprentice to a master paper hanger. There just needs to be an expanded way of getting the actual real world out there into the classroom in whatever way possible. And there needs to be funding for that so that children, teens, young adults can really, really get their feet wet into what work means, into what options might be out there to be as independent as possible. So I think that that's what I would love to see. I would love to see funding for things like internships and apprenticeships in a more expanded way than is currently being done. I would also like to see something much more universal in this country and throughout the world as far as fighting bullying. The headset today is that diversity seems to be something that we punish, and it's leading to bullying in schools. It's leading to increased suicides among teens. So that to me is just as important as learning the ABCs, learning kindness, learning consideration, getting rid of stereotypical ways of viewing anyone who is perceived to be different than you are. This has to be inculcated into the curriculum on a daily basis. This has to be modeled from the principal on down to the super, to the security guard. I had an experience recently where I was going to do a training in a high school. And I'm a guest. I'm a visitor. I entered that high school, literally was frisked with my hands up against the wall, and then checking my shoes as if I were a terrorist. And I'm thinking, this is how the students are greeted every day. Wow. I understand the need for security, but there still could have been kindness. <laughs> there still could have been communication. And I'm wondering, if I was a student today entering into a high school where this is how I was greeted, it's horrendous. So there needs to be an atmosphere of kindness, 
in our schools, and that has to start with the principal on down to every staff person, down to the kindergartner on up. That's what I would love to see happening in schools today. Well, it calls for us to be intentional about doing that because we yes. can get wrapped up in meeting regulations, meeting yes. what's expected of us, Absolutely. and we forget to be kind. Yes. Absolutely. What we're supposed to have learned in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not just kindergarten. If that doesn't follow through to the first grade, to the second grade, to the third grade, you say please, you say thank you, you help your friends. If your friend falls down and is crying, you hug them, you pick them up. These are the basic things that are supposed to follow through for the rest of your life that you learn when you're first going to school, and the parents need to follow up with that and reinforce that. It shouldn't be forgotten in the sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. There should be as much compassion and kindness. And when we see that in a student, when we see a student really exemplifying those qualities and showing compassion and kindness to somebody else, that should be rewarded. There should be awards, not just for the best basketball player and the best speller. I never forget when I showed up at one school and outside the school there was a glass case and in that glass case for the whole community to see is these are the students who this week showed kindness. That's what it said, and they listed specific mm -hmm. students with how they displayed kindness. They weren't rewarding any academics. They weren't rewarding any sports prowess that this person was able to throw the ball. Billy Smith this day showed kindness toward his fellow students in the playground by helping a student. That's what they were saying. This should be modeled. This should mm -hmm. be valued. And I thought, how profound is that, that a student can walk by, see their name, and then that the kindness that they displayed was actually being recognized. What a profound effect that's going to have on that student and other students now and in the future. This has to be balanced with academics, of course, but it shouldn't be honored any less on a daily basis by every wonderful teacher. And we know there are teachers who are doing that and there are administrations who are doing that, but there are administrations and teachers who are not doing that. And they have to do that. I absolutely agree. Thank you so much for that. Now, Gary, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? And this might seem strange. I'm not somebody who reads a lot. It's just not who I am. What I will read is information online. I do enjoy reading books that I think will help the families that I'm working with. And there are just many, many, many books written by parents of children with various disabilities that talk about how does one care for a child with autism, a child with a developmental disability. One thing, only because of the epidemic of children with autism spectrum disorders in this country and in this world, one thing that I've read, it's called The Survival Guide for Kids with Autism Spectrum Disorders and Their Parents by Elizabeth Verdick and Elizabeth Reeve. It's these kinds of survival guides that are written by parents of children with disabilities as opposed to the learned professionals in the field. It keeps me grounded when I get experiences of parents themselves, what they've gone through, and the techniques that they have learned to keep sanity in the household to help their children grow and flourish. I mean, I love reading those kinds of books, but this particular mm -hmm. one, if there are any folks out there who are actually working with families of kids on the spectrum, again, it's the Survival Guide for Kids with Autism Spectrum Disorders and Their Parents by Elizabeth Verdick and Dr. Elizabeth Reeve, and you can find it in Barnes & Noble. Many of the bookstores have sections now where many of the books are indeed written by professionals, but many of them are written by the parents. And I think it's important to read 
what the professionals in the field are saying, but I think it is equally, if not more important, to get uh, parents' perspectives on what they've mm-hmm. done and how they feel and what their journeys are all about. That does so much as far as supporting the way that we communicate with those parents, just getting a sense of what their journeys have been about and what's worked for their families. Gary, that's very valuable. Thank you so much for that. Now, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? In other words, how does Gary take care of Gary? I'll repeat what I said earlier. I make sure that I do what brings me joy. And what brings me joy is helping the families. I do it on a daily basis. I do it as soon as I get up. I'm constantly networking with other professionals in the field, promoting what I do and trying to get into their realms, coming to their schools, coming to their agencies, spreading the word. I'm constantly trying to motivate other professionals by being out there in the community. And when I say the community, I mean I go to every neighborhood in New York City, places that very often I am the only person who looks the way I do in that community. There used to be a song on Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the others. (laughs) And I am just as comfortable being anywhere in this great city of ours because I've learned through the years, people are people. People just want the best for their families, the best for themselves. So I guess being out there in the community as much as possible, and I consider the whole city my community, And I go where I'm needed, and by continuing to do that and being genuine about what I say to them and keeping up to date on all the information and the systems are changing daily, so making sure that I'm as competent as I can be on a daily basis, educating myself, constantly researching, not just from behind my computer, but being out there again, speaking to the family, speaking to professionals, This is what brings me joy. I'm going to try to keep doing it as long as I can. Now, what brings me joy having nothing to do with my job is taking long, long walks and looking at babies and looking at dogs and appreciating the beauty, you know, going to the botanic garden, looking at the flowers and just the very simple things in life, traveling, going to Italy as much as I can. That's what I do, and every once in a while having uh, Talente ice cream and remembering that the simple joys are still the simple joys. But uh, mm-hmm. my passion remains my passion, and that's helping the families, and I do it as much as I can. That's what I do on a daily basis. That's what continues to keep me grounded. Thank you so much for sharing that. You are extraordinary, Gary. I have to say I'm sitting here smiling. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad it makes you smile. <laughs> yes. I mean, I appreciate who you are, and you certainly have inspired me tremendously. So leadership is growing social-emotional skills. All the things that you've spoken about, being relentless, risk-taker, passionate, knowing yourself a bulldog, everything speaks leadership. And the hardest person to lead is always ourselves. So within that framework, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I think the younger me was very driven by grades, by doing well academically. And going back, I think perhaps the focus would have been on trying to hone in on my passion a lot earlier than I did and being more concerned with the bigger picture. I think that perhaps I came from a culture where 
schooling and college was very important, you know, even though I was the only member of my family who ever went to college. And maybe I did that to myself thinking I had to accomplish academically. But it caused a lot of consternation, and I think it caused a lot of stress. And maybe looking back, there's a saying, don't sweat the small stuff. That was probably the small stuff. I think the bigger stuff had to do with emotional growth, with what's really important, and what's really important is just basically on a daily basis helping people. And I think I would love to perhaps have done a lot more of that earlier on because I've discovered how satisfying that is, how important that is, as opposed to getting good grades. And I think Mm -hmm. that maybe we all come out of college realizing once we get into this real world, perhaps college and schooling needed to have gotten us into the real world a lot sooner than it did. And maybe then we would have gotten a much clearer perspective on what's really important. So maybe Gary Shulman telling younger Gary Shulman, don't sweat things like grades and academics and that type of performance. It ultimately is not what's going to be the important things in life. The important things in life just have to do with helping people. And that will happen if you stay genuine to who you are. And having OCD, I think that caused me tremendous stress with the grades. Mm -hmm. So perhaps Mm -hmm. changing my whole perspective. But I don't know. That's who I was as a kid. That's who I was as a young person. I don't know if that could have changed. And maybe, maybe I needed that stress back then to help me in some way learn about what brings me joy now. I mean, that's so well said, and you're absolutely right, and I appreciate that. Now, we've covered a lot of things. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? Just really looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, am I doing what I should be doing, and am I being genuine? That, that to me, there's nothing more important, because you deserve happiness in your life. I've chosen something that feels very genuine to me and the end result is that I'm making other people happy and I'm helping families but that's genuine to me there are many people in this profession where you know and I've heard them and I've heard them speaking about the families that they're working with and I have to think to myself lordy why is this person in this profession you know mm-hmm. maybe they need to be doing something else so there's nothing more important than being honest with yourself about who you are and what you're doing and ultimately is that making you yourself, are you being fulfilled by what you're doing? You shouldn't be doing it because of the accolades that it's bringing to you and the recognition it's bringing to you. You should be doing it because at the end of the day, it's enhancing your own life. And if the end result of that is that you're enhancing the lives of others, that's fantastic. But if you're miserable doing it and if it's not really who you are and why you want to be doing it, hey, like I said, as long as you're breathing, there's always opportunity to change. And I think mm-hmm. you should think about that. Especially if you're working with children. Especially if you're working <laughs> with children and their right. families yeah. because they can read you. Yeah. I mean, and when I say they can read you, they know why you're doing it, and they know if your heart is in it or if your heart is not in it. And mm-hmm. there's no sense in doing it if your heart is not in it. But I do understand the reality that people get to a certain position in their careers where you have to pay the rent, you've got to pay the bills, and now you're at the top echelon. You know, you're getting paid enough money to let you live a certain lifestyle. And it's kind of hard to break away from that. But ultimately, if that's going to shorten your lifespan and give you an ulcer and migraines every day, it's all about choices to bring happiness to yourself. And, you know, hopefully 
if you make the right choice, it'll also bring happiness to other people around you. Well, Gary, I've had such an amazing time with you. I really appreciate you pouring into me and pouring into our listeners. It's been my pleasure. I feel like I've had a few hours of psychoanalysis here. <laughs> me too. Good. It's good. It's good. It's, it's like a, a catharsis every once in a while is a good thing. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.